ุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสเ
this word nakampati means imperturbable. From the point of perceiving actuality clearly onwards, the Buddha's heart was utterly imperturbable. And, and unless you assume the Buddha told lies, and that's a clear explanation, the Buddha could not be triggered. So, it's an interesting contemplation to ponder. Why do we get triggered, and why was the Buddha not triggered? What quickly comes to my mind is the two reasons. One is the Buddha had dealt with all heedless habits of clinging. He identified clinging as a culprit. Everybody suffers and struggles and in life, and drilling right down through all of the symptoms and at the core, the very core is this, this activity that we do, this contraction of the heart, this limitation of awareness that we impose on our experience, we refer to in part as upadana or clinging. The Buddha had settled that and dealt with that completely. And, you know, the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta that we regularly chant here on a Saturday night, and if you've read this discourse in the Turning of the Wheel of the Law, you will know where he, the Buddha describes the various levels of suffering about how getting old and dying is suffering and being disappointed by things that happen in life is suffering. And then, in summary, basically, it says, the expression is Panchupadana Kanda Dukkha means basically the whole business of conditioned existence. If there's clinging, there's suffering. That's it. Material, mental, emotional dimensions of existence, all of it. If there's clinging, there's suffering. And so the Buddha had settled this matter. The Buddha had done his work. And... and if that's the case, then it's smart of us to be asking ourselves, have we done this work, or are we still lost in heedless habits of clinging? So this can be a, a pointing, a direction, uh, or how we can usefully be directing attention, to be not just thinking about, am I clinging, am I not clinging? If we make the right effort to cultivate that quality of awareness whereby there's a, a presence at the moment when we're about to do the clinging, feeling hurt by something, disappointed, angry about something, sad about something. We feel it, maybe afraid of something. We feel it in our guts, that fear. Can we be so present that instead of becoming the sadness, the anger, the disappointment, the fear. We can expand, open up the heart of awareness and meet ourselves there. That's the invitation to cultivate that quality of attention, to be so alert, so interested, so honest with ourselves that we can meet ourselves when we're suffering and see that we are the agents of this experience of limited being. We are the agents. We're doing this 
inhibition that's creating the suffering. The suffering's not happening to us. We're the agents of it. Or are we still caught up in heedless habits of clinging? Well, probably all of us are still caught up in it. And, and however, identifying this is this is the work. This is this is what needs to be done. And this is why the Buddha couldn't be triggered because the Buddha had finished his work. All heedless habits of clinging had finished, and emphasizing the. Uh, heedless habits of clinging. We're not talking about holding things. An uninspected approach to these teachings might mean that we think we're supposed to just sit there and do nothing. That's not the training at all. There is definitely a need to be able to discipline attention, to hold to a meditation object, for instance, in the right way. If we cling to the meditation object, contract our awareness and energy all goes up into our head and we end up getting a headache and after meditation you stand up and you feel dizzy holding in the right way is you can't hold and you can't make a nice cup of tea and enjoy drinking it if you hold in the wrong way you'll break the handle off the teacup or the teapot there's a right way of holding compulsive holding heedless holding is called clinging. As children, it's perfectly normal. We're very vulnerable as children, very vulnerable. And we, we cling to mummy and daddy. We don't want to let go. We can't even walk. And even when we learn to walk, we're still clinging to our, our toys because we think that they're going to be taken away from us. And, and clinging to the idea of mummy and daddy, you know, if they leave the room, certain stage of infancy we don't know that mummy and daddy are just going outside and they'll be coming back again or they're going to work and they'll be coming back again hopefully as we grow up start to develop the faculties of being able to imagine how just because mummy or daddy's left the room or gone off to work for a few hours it doesn't mean to say they're never coming back again and we can imagine that they are coming back so we don't suffer as a result so we learn to let go a little bit or hold lightly the idea of mummy and daddy and maybe also hopefully with our possessions we maybe learn to share our possessions and just because we share something with somebody doesn't mean to say that other person is going to take it away from us and we do however most of us only take that lesson to a limited stage and we do still cling heedlessly and it shows up in all sorts of areas, like our reputation, when somebody says something disrespectful. As if somebody else's opinion about us is that important. And really, surely what's important is what we know about ourselves. And if somebody else says something insulting to us, and we get upset about it, where's that coming from? Is that an obligation? The Buddha had all sorts of awful things said to him. There's a story, and I think it's in the commentaries, where this Brahmin fellow was annoyed with the Buddha because his wife was spending too much time going to listen to the Buddha's discourses. And, and one day he went along and he really told the Buddha what he thought about it in a public situation. And, and so the Buddha addressed him and asked him, Brahmin, he said, do you ever have house guests come to stay with you? And Brahmin replied something to the effect, yes, of course we have house guests. 
to ask them when you have guests come to stay with you, do you give them gifts? And as is the tradition in India, the Brahmin said, yes, of course we give gifts to our guests. And then the Buddha asks them, if your guests don't take their gifts away with them, who do they belong to? Well, of course they belong to me. And the Buddha said, well, Brahman, I don't accept your anger. The Buddha didn't get angry at this fellow. The Buddha was able to meet it with understanding and gave a teaching that hopefully helped the Brahman see that he was the one who was making suffering for himself and others. Heedless clinging always ends up in suffering. As children, we grow up and to a certain point we learn that we need to hold life lightly. However, we need to take that to another level. Again, it shows up like if you get a medical prognosis and the doctor tells you you've got a terminal illness and what happens? Well, do we think the Buddha would have been triggered if he got told by Jivika that he had a terminal illness? I don't imagine so. Why? Because the Buddha's awareness was so vast, was so edgeless, the Buddha's heart was so wide open, there was no attachment, there was no clinging. For us, the chances are there's going to be disappointment, sadness, anger, fear. And how do we meet that? Do we judge it and say, I shouldn't be having these reactions? Or do we allow that reaction to go straight up into our heads and then turn into storytelling. Who's responsible for this? Why did this happen to me? This shouldn't happen to me. Presumably that's usually what happens in most cases. We get triggered. We don't meet ourselves in our reaction, in the intensity, and it goes up into our heads. Why was the Buddha never triggered? Well, one explanation is that he had dealt with all habits of heedless clinging. Another explanation is that he had also dealt with his accumulation of obstructing karma, which I like to refer to as backlog of denied dukkha. Things that have happened into our, in our life when we weren't ready or able to deal with them, and instead of meeting them, we push our reaction into unawareness. That's the karma that we create. That's the karma that we do. And we push the reaction into unawareness. And it's not always necessarily major things. It can be an accumulation of incremental moments of denied life that build up into this backlog of denied life. This DDB, denied dukkha backlog. The burden human beings accumulate in their life. The Buddha had dealt with all of his denied dukkha, all of his karmic obstructions. It's not that the Buddha decided he wanted to become enlightened and, and then went and lived with a great teacher and did a vipassana course and, and read a few inspiring books and got enlightened. No way. It's not that Ajahn Chah realized that he really wanted to live this life as a monk with real benefit and with relevance and and just sat in samadhi, became peaceful. No way. The Buddha and the great disciples had to work extremely hard. And what is that work? Why is it so hard? 
or you can read that story of Ajahn Chah on the charnel grounds and his fear of ghosts. That's probably not something most of us are going to have to deal with, not fear of ghosts. How about fear of rejection or anger at having been rejected? That's, that can be very real. And is it that moment of fear or that moment of anger that we're dealing with? Or is it that moment triggers a backlog of denied life, denied pain? I know a monk who was recently explaining to me this experience he had in, in practicing with dealing with this and it was very heartening to hear how determined he was to really engage with this intensity because that's what it feels like and it can feel very threatening. I don't know what it was that had happened to him or who did what or said what to him. However, it triggered an enormous reaction of, of intensity, very threatening. However, he'd resolved to just feel it and welcome it, really welcome it. And when it started to subside or get distant or the energy maybe go up to his head or something, just talk it back down again, bring it to the heart, bring it to the guts, bring it into the body. And he describing how he talked to her, come on, come on, I want to get to know you. And it takes daring, it takes real daring to meet our denied life. And the Buddha demonstrated that. Ajahn Chah, the great teachers, they've demonstrated that for us and, and this inspiration also can be a great help if we want to be free from the vulnerability of being triggered sooner or later we're going to be required to stop trying to become peaceful stop trying to have special experiences stop trying to have great insights stop trying to be happy as natural and understandable and appropriate as that is, if we're hooked on that, if we're addicted to that sort of becoming, then we can be avoiding dealing with that which the Buddha dealt with, that which the great teachers deal with. And there's this meeting ourselves where we're at. And again, this, this monk was telling me how when he sat through it for long enough, it did subside, it did disappear. And in its place was this ease, this sense of ease and lightness, like a burden had fallen away. This burning through obstructive karma can feel like that. Interestingly, a day or so later when I asked him how he's doing, he was talking about how in the morning after this experience of it falling away and realizing kindness and also a clarity that meant he could understand in a new way, and instead of just feeling angry about what had been said to him or done to him, he suddenly came to this realization that, in fact, it was something else altogether. He wasn't really angry at this other person. <laughs> he was really holding on to this anger at himself, this judgment of himself, of having always, always making a mess of things. It was completely different from what he thought it was. However, that perception, that very helpful perception, was obscured by being angry at the other person. And the habit of projecting anger and blame outwards, which we're so used to, had to be sat through, had to be endured through, had to be burnt through before he could see 
And then when that fell away, there was this experience of ease. However, the next day, presumably looking forward to feeling great, he woke up feeling absolutely awful. And that's also important to bear in mind that just because we begin to do this work doesn't mean to say that it's going to get easier. It's hard work and it's tiring. And if you do endure through that which needs to be endured through, it's sensible to be prepared for needing to take time to integrate that, to feel tired. Just because we feel tired doesn't mean to say there's something going wrong. You've been working hard. The habit of feeling tired is to just get resentful and disillusioned. However, that's again, that's heedless. So let's be alert to that. Let's be careful about that. So the Buddha couldn't be triggered because he had dealt with all heedless habits of clinging. And the Buddha couldn't be triggered because he had dealt with his backlog of obstructive karma or denied life. And how do we do that? How do we deal with it? Well, I would suggest the place to always the place to start is by checking to see our standard of sila. Sila is that which gives rise to a sense of inner ease or self-confidence or safety. A sense of feeling safe, a sense of feeling confident is the direct result of cultivating integrity. Traditionally, if you may have noticed that when you look at Buddha images, you see the Buddha is always sitting or standing on a lotus. And the lotus is a symbol for that which is beautiful emerging out of the swamp. And so it is a human being who lives with integrity, surrounded by people compromising integrity. There's a beauty to that. And that commitment to integrity is the foundation on which the aspiration for liberation needs to sit. So that's always the place to start. We may want to be liberated, we may long for awakening, we may be interested in freedom from suffering. Well, the intelligent approach is to check to see the level of commitment to integrity. Not just refraining from gross, heedless habits of stealing and killing, but also refi refining that down and being really interested in our intention to cause harm. And and the second, I would suggest, thing to pay attention to is do we know how to look after ourselves physically? How do we include our body in this practice? It's so tempting in the spiritual life to want to get subtle, and the body's not subtle, the body's quite coarse. There's a whole discourse the Buddha gave on Pali was chankama or walking meditation. The benefits of chankama, the benefits of walking meditation. Recently, we're in the community, we were discussing this great Ajahn in Thailand, Bumpo Wen, used to live in, in the north of Thailand, the north of Thailand. He had his practice of doing three three hour walking sessions a day. Three three hour walking sessions a day. To the point where it became so much a part of him that when he got really old and he couldn't walk anymore, 
he had his attendant monk walk him up and down in his wheelchair. I, I don't know if it was still nine hours a day or not. However, he was still going up and down in his walking path, but in a wheelchair. And bringing our formal practice into a physical form of activity. And likewise with other aspects of our daily life. You know, learning to do intentional physical activities, whether it's you know, doing Tai Chi or Qigong or going for walks or going swimming. Bringing the practice into the body. You know. A lot of the habits of resistance, of denial, are locked into our muscles, into our nervous system. And if all we're doing is sitting on a cushion, because we like the look of the Buddha image sitting there, being peaceful, if we think that's going to solve all of our problems, we might be very, very disappointed. It's important to bring this practice into the body. For the young monks living in this monastery, and the encouragement that I give them in terms of how they spend their personal time, we've got, we've got community practice and sit meditation and, and chant together and then there's working period together and then there's several hours every day where they can write their own program and my encouragement for how they use that time is four things formal study formal meditation learning chanting and exercise we don't have a conscious appreciation for bringing the practice into the body then there's a real chance that we'll go out of balance the third approach I would suggest and encourage and think about how we deal with our backlog of denied life is what in Pali is called Kalyanamitta, spiritual companions. If we want to know how to deal with this backlog of pain, the advice would be to don't wait until you're in a challenged condition before you cultivate the kind of friendship where people who you sense they really see you they get you, they can listen to you, and they're not going to interrupt you while you're speaking and try and fix you up. You have the feeling maybe that they're listening from their hearts, not just listening from their heads. You feel met, you feel received. And a wonderful thing can happen when you feel received in that manner. Then maybe you can learn to receive yourself, which of course is what we need to do. You know, that monk I was mentioning a wee while ago, recently went through a bit of an ordeal. He commented how he said, oh, when you talk about learning to meet yourself where you're at, people probably think they know what you're talking about, but often they don't. You know, meeting yourself where you're at, when you're really in the midst of that intensity, there's something else altogether. You feel deeply threatened. And it can help a lot if you have friends who are able to meet you when you're feeling challenged listen to you. It's kind of amazing the benefit that can come from that. I suspect this is probably what goes on in principle with the confessional where, where the person confessing their sins feels heard by the priest. That principle applies. Yeah. Or for the monks here when we have the recitation of the Patimoka every two weeks before we sit and listen to the recitation of the, the 227 rules we meet one on one junior and senior and we acknowledge any transgressions we've made against the rules and one says to the other that I have transgressed this rule and the other one says do you see it 
and then the back says, yes, I see it, and then the other one says, be more careful in the future. That's it. Feel seen, feel heard. It's not, at least as far as we're concerned, it's not like the, the other monk is forgiving you for your offences. We've got to do that for ourselves. However, that feeling heard, feeling seen can be wonderfully supportive. Another way of approaching this backlog of denied life, I would suggest, is intervention. And this is where sometimes we really need somebody else or something external to support us. Just the same as, you know, if you hurt yourself physically, sometimes you need support while you recover. Well, likewise, emotionally, spiritually, all of us are carrying hurt from the past and there could well be times when we need external support, not just somebody to talk with. It might also mean something like cranial psychotherapy or deep tissue massage or, or acupuncture. I've spoken before about acupuncture and I'm a great fan of, if you find a good acupuncturist who really knows what they're doing, can be wonderfully supportive. So preparing ourselves, if we're inspired by the example of the Buddha and the great teachers, and the image of how it means to live in this world free from the risk of being triggered in the way the irrational pain that manifests over and over again our own life and in society. If we're inspired by that, well then hopefully some of these hints that I've given this evening you'll find supportive. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.